following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. So sometimes we encounter people that are that are hostile to the message of the gospel. Um, maybe it's not always the norm, but it, it's really something that should not surprise us. We live in a world that's disinterested and sometimes even hostile to the gospel. This didn't start recently. It, it stems all the way back to the time of Christ and his disciples. You think about the upper room where the context of our passage from today, Christ is in the upper room and he's there with his disciples, and he covers a number of things, uh, things that we've been going through these last few weeks. He tells his disciples that he is going to have to suffer. And then he even tells them that one of them there is going to betray him. And the disciples are perplexed. They begin to ask each other, is it me? Could, 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 could I be the one? Is it me? Is it me? And, and they're wondering. And somehow the conversation changes from, is it me? Could I be the one who's going to deny him to... Who's the greatest? Now, I'm not sure how the conversation moves from that point to, to the other point. Perhaps it was, well, it couldn't be me because I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. So, uh, But they begin arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. And Christ then tells them, actually, in the kingdom, uh, it's not going to be about uh, greatness in the kingdom. will not be about exercising authority, but it will be about serving. And he continues on. He tells them that they will have significant positions in the kingdom to come. They will sit on thrones judging the 12 nations. That brings us to our passage today. We're at Luke 22, verses 31 to 38. I'm going to go ahead and read that. If you have your Bible with you, if you have a device of some sort that has it, pull it out. We're going to be referring to it quite a bit today, so so have it with you. Verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold... Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you have denied me three times, denied three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with their transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So here they are in the upper room. There's sort of two parts to to this passage that we're looking at today. The first part, Christ tells them that they're going to abandon him. Verses 31, 32, all the disciples are going to be tried. When you, part, part of the weakness in English, we just have this one you. And so you can't always distinguish from a plural you or a singular you like you can in, in some languages. But in, in the Greek, it would read something like this. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you 
all. It's a plural you. You all. All of the disciples. That he might sift you all. All of you like wheat. So he's not just talking about Simon. He's talking about all the disciples. He says, but I have prayed for you. This is singular. I prayed for you, Simon, in particular, that your faith will not fail. And when you, Simon, have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Satan has asked God to sift or to test all of the disciples. Sifting is a refining process uh, in many places that's still used to remove the, the chaff from what is good to eat. It's a process of getting rid of things that are, that are not useful. And so Satan has demanded that he be able to sift the disciples. Reminds you very much of Job when, when Satan was before God and God said, hey, look at my servant Job. And, and Job said, well, the only reason... Uh, Satan said to, to God, the only reason that uh, Job serves you that way is because you treat him so well. Let me test him and we'll see what he's made out of. And so we know that um, this testing is going to happen. But then Jesus tells Peter, he says, when you have turned again. So he's already telling Peter, there's a test coming. You're not going to pass it. But when you come back, um, then I want you to strengthen the brothers. So this is, it's kind of interesting because this is in contrast to what Christ has just told them a couple of minutes ago. In verse 28, he had just told them, um, he says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assigned you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. And so he's just told them, hey, you guys have all been with me and I'm going to assign to you a kingdom. But now in contrast to what the past has been, he's telling them that they're all going to be sifted and tried. And he knows in particular that Peter is going to fail in some way. So now Peter, in verse 33, he, he reacts. He reacts with, with extreme self-confidence, which was, was kind of Peter's personality. He, he says, I won't betray you. Um, it, it's kind of interesting because in the same conversation, remember, Christ had just told him, somebody is going to deny me. And now he tells Peter that he is going to fail and come back. Did the disciples think that Peter was the one? Did, did Peter maybe understand that maybe he would be the one who would deny him? And so Peter very strongly says, essentially, what are you talking about? I'll follow you even to prison or death. I will not betray you. Peter's extremely self-confident. And so then in verse 34, Christ takes Peter's self-confidence down a notch. He gives him a view of his real self. He says, actually, Peter, you're wrong. Despite your, your confidence, assurance that you're going to stick with me, uh, that you're going to be faithful with me even to death. Actually, you're going to deny me three times before today is done. Despite that you think that you might be strong enough, despite the fact that you might think that you're devoted enough to me, you actually don't know yourself as well as you think you do. This trial is going to be really hard and you're not going to pass it. When the pressure is on, you're going to deny me not once, but three times. There's a few things I think we can see from this part of the passage. First thing is that Peter will recover from this failure. Peter will be tried, and he's going to fail, but he's not going to be discarded. Rather, he's going to come back. He's going to strengthen his brothers. In fact, he's going to lead them. He's going to be the leader of the early church. Repentance can be followed by restoration and even growth. Peter's test and his coming back, I believe, actually made him even more resolute in his faith. It's not very long after this that we see Peter uh, on the day of Pentecost. They're standing before thousands of people proclaiming Christ, unashamedly telling everyone, this is who Christ is. 
This is what happened. Not very much long after that, uh, in Acts chapter 4, him and John are standing before the Sadducees and the Pharisees, basically telling them off, you killed the Messiah, you killed the Christ. The people he was so afraid of before, he now has no problem standing in front of them and telling them, this is the way it is. They tell him, okay, don't teach in the name of this Jesus anymore. And they respond. They said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But as for us, we will keep preaching of the things that we have seen and we have heard. So Peter has this confidence, but it's no longer a confidence, I think, in himself. It's a confidence in the message. It's a confidence in the one who sent him. He's able to recover from his failure. We see that Jesus prays for Peter. Christ took prayer very seriously. He prayed that his faith would not fail. So Peter has to turn back to Christ, but his faith didn't fail. He, he was scared. He ran away for a time, but he came back. He didn't abandon his faith in the Messiah. I think that Peter's true faith and perseverance would be revealed in his repentance and not his sinlessness. Same as us, we all sin. It's not our faithfulness that's shown in the fact that we don't sin. It's the fact that we repent and we come back and we keep going. Jesus extends grace to Peter. I find this passage very interesting if you think about it. Um, Jesus tells Peter, you're going to fall away, you're going to come back. And then he tells him he's going to deny him three times. You've got to remember, Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends. There were three disciples that were closest to Jesus. It was Peter, John, and James. And they spent a lot of time together. Jesus took them to do special things. And I, I don't know if we always reflect on this sometimes, uh, because I think sometimes when we think about Christ, we think about his, his uh, divinity. And we don't always think about his humanity. Christ was 100% human as well. And so now he is telling Peter, you're going to deny me. So essentially his, one of his best friends he tells him, you're going to deny me. So how does Jesus react to him? I think if it had been me, I'd have probably told him, you're going to deny me, and you know what, for all the good things I've done to you, and I would have just gone on and hammered him. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus extends grace to him and says, you're going to um, deny me. But then he looks to the future and says, and when you come back, you strengthen the brothers. He doesn't reject them. He doesn't rebuke him. He looks to the future. That doesn't mean that Christ doesn't deal with Peter on this issue. I think the whole time when Jesus is on the beach with John after the resurrection and he talks to him and he says three times, do you love me? I think he's dealing with this whole issue of, of Peter uh, rejecting him three times. So Christ has the time and the place that he deals with them on this issue. But at this point in time, he extends grace to him. That brings us to our second section uh, verses 35 to 38. Where Christ says essentially, things are going to be different now. Things are going to be different now. Verse 35, in the past when the disciples were sent out, they took nothing and they required nothing. Christ sent the disciples out two different times. In Luke 9, verses 1 to 6, he sends out the 12 and he tells them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bag nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter in, stay there, and from there depart. And whenever they do not receive you, 
When you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And then in Luke 10, he sends out the 72 and the instructions that he gives him when he sends out the 72. He says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. And so now, verse 36, in contrast to the past, the disciples, they need to prepare themselves. Things are going to change. You need to be prepared. Last time I told you, don't take a money bag, don't take a knapsack. Um, But now you're going to need those things. And I want you to go out and buy a sword. And if you don't own a sword, I need you to sell your cloak and buy a sword. You understand, at that time, a cloak was one of your main prized possessions. When you went to bed at night, you went to sleep, especially if you were out traveling, that was your blanket. And so it was very important. You needed that thing. You would not survive very long without it. So the importance of this thrust is... Things are going to change. Get yourself ready. If you don't have a sword, go out and buy one. The swords typically at that time were used to to fight off uh, thieves. Um, Sometimes, obviously, were used in war as well. But they need to be prepared to face hostility and persecution. The goodness and the hospitality that they had had in the past when they went out is not going to be there. Things are changing. Verse 37 Christ quotes Isaiah 53:12. He says that he will be reckoned among the criminals. He will be treated like a criminal. And by implication, so will those who identify with him. And then verse 38, I think the disciples are confused. Christ has told them to go out and buy a sword. Like so many times when Christ said different things to them, they take it very literally. And so they take inventory. Hey, Christ, we've got two swords here. And he responds to them and says, That's enough. Perhaps they were thinking the time had finally come. Jesus had just been talking about the kingdom. He had just told them that they were going to sit on the 12 thrones and judge the nations, uh, judge Israel. And so maybe they thought, okay, this is the time we're going to come together. We're going to throw off the Roman Empire. This is it. But Jesus says that's enough. It's it's, it's almost dismissive. Uh, Think about it. There's 13 of them there. If they take inventory and there's only two swords... If you're going to go to battle, you're going to need at least 13 swords if you've got 13 people, right? Probably you'd want a few extras. But he says that's enough. That's enough. Jesus is referring to spiritual things. I think they misunderstood Jesus. Only a few hours later, they're up on the Mount of Olives sleeping. I mean praying. And uh, Judas comes to betray Jesus. And what do they do? One of the disciples, we find out from the book of John, it was Peter, draws out a sword. When, when they're... Uh, confronted, they ask Christ, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Peter doesn't even wait for an answer. He's got a sword out, cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. What's Jesus' response? Does he say attack? Does he grab a sword? No, he heals the servant. Christ was referring to spiritual things here. If he had intended for them literally to take up swords, I think that whole scenario would have played out different. We see that Christ's community will function in a context of rejection. They will function in a context of opposition, rejection. They will minister in a world that is hostile to them. The growing opposition to Jesus and his followers means that they must go out prepared to face hardship and rejection. So what does this passage mean to us today? I think the first thing I would say is when you fail, repent, 
get back up. Peter's denials, I think, are significant instructing us about how we fail and how we can recover. Part of Peter's problem was he had this excessive overconfidence. These trials can't affect me. I can't be tempted in that way. And sure enough, he falls down because he was too overconfident in his own ability to face trials. The temptation that he faced was too great for him to face alone. At that point when Peter fell away denying Christ three times, he, he, he could have thought all kinds of things. And I suspect he had a lot of things running through his mind, but he could have decided, I'm worthless. I'm a screw up. I'm a weakling. I'm unable to stand up under the pressure. I'm unworthy to be counted with the Messiah. He could have quit, walked off. It's too difficult. Forget it. He could have gone and spent extended time in in self-pity. But he didn't stay there. He learned from his failure. He went back to be the primary leader of the church. So where are you at? Maybe you've messed up. Maybe you've done something that mars the name of Christ. What are you doing about it? Are you going to hang out in self-pity? Are you going to hang out in self-chastisement? Or are you going to repent and grow through whatever it is that you failed at and become stronger? Second thing I think we can see here is that we need to pray like we mean it. Christ took prayer very seriously. When we look at his life, we see that he took time praying very seriously, time with his Heavenly Father. In this passage, he prays specifically that Peter will remain faithful. He knows that his prayer will be answered. He tells Peter, I've prayed, and here's the result. You are going to come back, and when you do, strengthen the brothers. I think sometimes our view of sovereignty sometimes gets in the way of our prayer life. Sometimes we pray not really expecting that we can impact what's going to happen because, well, sovereignty is there and whatever God's will is, it's, it's going to happen anyway. So we just kind of pray maybe to adjust our attitude or, or, or uh, things like that. It's, it's like a Christian fatalism. Um, but I actually don't think that Christ really prayed like that. I think Christ, when he prayed, expected that he had the ability to impact things within the spiritual realm. I think we need to pray Believing, truly believing in the power of prayer. So I'd ask ourselves, what, what kind of prayer are we engaging in? Do we pray with real expectation? Are we shocked when our prayers are actually answered? Uh, I know sometimes uh, that happens to myself. We, we pray things and, and we ask God for certain things, but then when it actually happens, you, you feel shocked and you think, oh, wow, I, I guess I prayed about that. And... I expect the results, but I, wow, God answered very directly. Um, we had something like that happen recently. We were, um, a couple months ago, I, I went and did a, a survey trip looking at university ministry here in Thailand. It was, we set aside 10 days. There was a group of us that went around to some different parts of the country learning about what's going on in university ministry. And we started putting our report together to get information out there for, about recruitment and stuff, but Everything's not put together yet, but we started praying uh, in the process of planning, setting out new, new plans, new strategies. One of the first thing you can do is pray. And so we started praying, asking God for people, asking God for, 
for wisdom and the strategy and everything. And, and just a few days before Christmas, we get this sort of odd Facebook message. Hey, um, I'm in your organization. You don't know me. Um, I've had to change. We've had to change. Our families had to change ministry. We're down in South America. And we've been looking at other countries in South America. But haven't just quite felt right about going there. And Thailand, for some reason, came to mind. So we we'll just send you an email. Are you guys doing anything in university ministry in Thailand? We're like, oh, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, in fact, um, we've just looked at all of this. But nobody knows because the information's not out there yet. So, uh, so God's answering prayer already before we've even written the report. And yet we're shocked. Wow, God answered. That's really awesome. Um, but how often do we pray actually really believing that God is, is really going to respond, really going to change things? third thing I think we can think about is uh, extending grace to those who wrong us. I think if we go beyond that, not, not, it's not just extending grace to those who wrong us, but even extending grace to those around us, those within our community. If Christ was able to have this kind of attitude with Peter, someone who would commit a great offense against him personally, how should we react when people commit offenses against us? How should we react when we see people around us who failed in some way? How should we react to them? How do we extend grace to each other? Sometimes we Christians, we can be a very judgmental community. Um, and sometimes those working in missions, I feel like sometimes we can, we can be even more judgmental. I don't think we are always conscious of it, but we do like to judge each other. We judge each other in how we use our time. We can judge each other in how we use our money. We judge people's commitment levels in ministry or commitment to language learning. We look at people's schooling choices and we can judge each other on that. We can judge each other on housing choices, vehicle choices. The list goes on and on. How we raise our kids. It's a long list. We, we say interesting things about each other um, that often are judging each other. Do we extend grace to each other within our community and try and understand the situation of, of, of each person and where they're coming from? This is something I think we can grow in. What about those who have offended us personally? How do we react? Do we forgive quickly? Or do we harbor? Do we harbor? And do we begin to then see that person through the lens of that offense? And everything they do, no matter what it is, how good or, or bad, we, we see it through that lens and we interpret all of their action because they offended me at some point. Do we live in the past never moving beyond that offense? Maybe we're even happy to see something not so good happen to them. I, that wouldn't happen in a Christian community, would it? No. No. Jesus looks past Peter's offense and looks at the future. I think... Um, Probably one of the hardest uh, kind of times I, I passed through with somebody offending me was a, was a time in Malawi when we were working down in, in southern Africa. And I was in charge of a, a large project, and I was working directly with, with a pastor with a very uh, high position within the denomination that we partnered with. And I began to find out that in the project there was some things being mismanaged. Someone came to me with a concern. I did some investigation, and sure enough, there was some very blatant mismanagement of some resources. And so 
I went about confronting the individual uh, through through the kind of networks that were there, and we en- it ended up in a big kind of church leadership, the executive committee of the denomination meeting together to discuss this issue. And uh, at that time, I was a project guy, and I came and said my stuff, and and then they said, okay, you can leave now. So I went home to go chew on my nails and see what would would come about of the situation. And in the end, the person, the pastor who had the high position, who had been involved in this, came to my house, along with a few other people, kind of mediators, and he began to confess what had happened and owning up to the different things that happened. But in the process, he said, I have to ask your forgiveness. He said, when I have been traveling in the southern region of the nation I have been saying bad things about you to all of the other pastors. And I thought, am I sitting in a movie? Like, I've been telling them bad things about you. I've been telling them to have bad motives. And it just kind of, the list went on. I just thought, I didn't think this happened in real life. I just, you know, particularly in ministry. These things don't happen in ministry, do they? But he went on to tell me all of these things. And I had to sit there and decide, what do I want to do? Do I want to hit him? Do I want to get up and walk away? Uh, do you extend grace? And if you extend grace, I mean, what does that even look like? Um, but sometimes we have to, we, we, we encounter these things and we, we struggle with them. How do you, how do you, how do you do that? Uh, these are not easy, not easy things. We need to try to extend grace to, to people who wrong us. The last thing I would say is don't be surprised when we face opposition in the Christian life. As Christ's disciples... We're aliens in a strange land, as 1 Peter 2.11 tells us. We're citizens of heaven, as Philippians 3.20-21 tells us. We live in a place that's not our home. This is not our home. We live in a fallen world. So we should not be surprised when we face opposition. We should not be surprised when we face hardship or have to make self-sacrifice for the kingdom. Christ's admonition to his disciples to prepare to live in a hostile environment still apply today. Are we prepared to suffer those hard things? Are we prepared to make the self-sacrifices that are necessary? The early disciples that Christ was talking to all paid a significant high price for their following Christ. Church history tells us that each and every one of them, to our knowledge, suffered very difficult deaths. So what kind of oppositions are we facing? I don't think many of us feel that our lives are necessarily at threat because of the gospel, but we face lots of other kinds of oppositions. We face oppositions from without. Uh, Sometimes they're as simple as administrative visa issues. Sometimes they're more significant than that. Sometimes we face opposition from within. Um, Satan wanted to sift the disciples. Uh, Should we be surprised when we get problems within our own teams? Is it possible that a sifting is happening within our own teams? We become surprised when there's significant disharmony in our teams. And so we rush out, we take personality tests, we read multicultural books, we do all kinds of things to give us more wisdom in knowing how to deal with these issues. I wonder sometimes if we don't misdiagnose, if some of these aren't spiritual issues, spiritual attacks And we need to spend some more time praying and asking God to help us with these issues. We need to be prepared. Things 
are uncomfortable, things are supposed to be uncomfortable. They may become even more uncomfortable. Things are going to be difficult. However, we serve a great God. We have a privilege to serve in his kingdom. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.